If you have your scriptures, uh, please open them to Joel uh, chapter 1. I'll let you have a minute to find Joel. It's in the Minor Prophets. <laughs> Not one we look at very often, but uh, I hope, uh, hope you can find it. We're going to be reading uh, the first 20 verses of chapter 1. And for the next five weeks, uh, uh, doing a short series in the book of Joel, I think it's an appropriate text for the times that we're living in. And uh, I hope that you will enjoy it. So now hear uh, the Word of God. If you don't have your Scriptures with you, by the way, there's an insert in your bulletin um, of the text itself so you can follow along. Now hear God's Word. The Word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and let their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up and the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the fields has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth. Lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out, to the Lord. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near and the destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. 
To you, O Lord, I call. For the fire has destroyed the pastures of the wilderness. The flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you. Because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. This is the word of the Lord. In 2004, National Geographic uh, did a piece on a locust swarm that had uh, gone into the countryside in Australia. And here's what uh, Nat Geo had to say about it. The swarms of locusts move across the land, completely blocking the sun with a sound some likened to that of a hailstorm. At their most ferocious, the migrating locusts can form swarms up to nine square miles, travel more than 300 miles a day. A swarm of just one half square mile can contain up to 50 million locusts and consume 11 tons of vegetation every 24 hours. As they move through an area, females dig holes and lay 100 eggs in each hole. A single square yard of soil can contain 75 to 100,000 eggs. The adults fly away. But in a few weeks, the eggs hatch and the young look like large ants with no wings. They hop on the ground eating everything that is left by the adults. Then these young molt once more and produce wings, but still don't fly. They continue to pillage and completely the area they're in. Finally, they molt one last time and become flying adults, moving away singly or in a swarm uh, to a new location. Now the Hebrew prophets, uh, when you read the prophets of the Old Testament, many of us are under the misconception that the prophets always were foretelling the future. But if you go back and you read the prophets very carefully, you'll find out that only rarely did they predict future events. They weren't the normal kind of prophets. They were not foretellers of future events, but foretellers. In other words, they were called on by God to explain events that either were in the process of happening or, in many cases, had already happened. And so the prophets were not these mystical types of people who were kind of predicting future events some decades ahead or hundreds or even thousands of years ahead. Although there are a few, very few, almost a handful in your scriptures where they actually do that. Most of the time, they're doing this. And the prophets used these catastrophes, these natural events that either were happening or were right on the horizon. In other words, they had gotten news that a swarm of locusts was moving their way. An army was at their way. Perhaps an army was already at the gate. And the prophets would start to prophesy. And you see this army? The army's here because of this and this and this. So the prophets used these catastrophes, both natural, like this locust swarm, and the uh, human catastrophes, like an army coming up and, and getting ready to destroy Jerusalem or take over Samaria, as portents. 
They were warnings. In this book, particularly, it's a wake-up call. Joel is saying, awake! Wake up, you drunkards! Look at what's happening to you. Wake up. And Joel uses this entire prophecy to predict a future dreadful, he calls it the great and dreadful day of the Lord. A final horrific judgment that will come upon the earth. The Apostle Peter, in Acts chapter 2, in his first sermon after the resurrection of Jesus, on the day of Pentecost, Peter picks up on this theme and he actually uses Joel as his primary text, although he does use some other text. And Peter connects, listen to this folks, this this will expand the way you think about your life and the times you live in right now. Peter uses the prophecy of Joel as a portent, as a warning, and he connects it to the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which happened on the day of Pentecost. And this great crowd that gathered saying, what's going on, what's going on, as, as the apostles and the others that were with them came out of the upper room, speaking in languages that they didn't know, but that the crowd did know. What's the meaning of this? And Peter said, this is a sign. It's a fulfillment that the days of Joel are upon us. The last days. Now when you turn on Christian TV at night, you hear a lot of these guys on television saying that we are in the last days. The Apostle Peter was in the last days. Yes? Apostle Peter was in the last days. John Calvin was in the last days. Martin Luther was in the last days. Charles Spurgeon was in the last days. And you and I live in the last days. The last days began with the coming of Jesus and the last days are continuing till now and until the future. We don't know when. Jesus may come in the middle of my sermon and many of you may hope that He does. Uh, Or He may come uh, in a million years from now. We do not know. No one knows the hour or the day. But what we do know is that we're living in the last days. And so Peter uses this text as a wake-up call telling people, wake up. Look at what you have ahead of you. You're going to be living in last days. And so in order to understand the last days, there's a lot of fear. You know, as you see our presidential candidates and these politicians and the nuttiness that is literally going on in the world around us everywhere, violence and wars and rumors of wars and people are predicting the end is near, the end is near, and the end is near. It may happen tomorrow. It may happen in a million years. But one thing is certain, folks, that when we leave and exit this building, the great and dreadful day of the Lord will be closer than it was when you came in the building. That much we know. That much we are sure. Listen to this. The last days are a time when borders, margins between life and death, Time and eternity fade. It's the time of the already and not yet. The already of the kingdom. The reality that the kingdom of God exists today. That Jesus Christ is not a king in absentia. That He is a king on His throne. And He is ruling. And He will determine who the next president of the United States is. Not you. 
Now, I'm not saying you don't go out and vote. Go vote. Vote your conscience. But when it's all over and said and done, if anybody at Christ the King comes in here wringing their hands, I'm going to turn you over my knee and spank you. Stop the hand wringing and stop the fear. Christians, understand you're living in the last days and do not fear. Do you hear me? Do not be afraid. Yes, the sun will be darkened and the moon will turn to blood. There will be great and dreadful days ahead. There always have been. There always will be. But we must stand united and not be afraid. Death, time, and eternity fade. The already and not yet is here. The continuation of the kingdom exists today. The inauguration of the kingdom came with the first advent, the coming of Jesus, and the consummation will come someday in the future. For certain, it's like a tidal wave. The earthquake happened on the day Jesus was raised from the dead, and that tidal wave, that tsunami is moving closer and closer every day. But we are not to be afraid. The consummation will come, but we're living in this continuation. And it can be a time of great tension, a time of confusion and fear. And that's why I'm your pastor and I'm telling you don't be afraid. Now, we're all going to leave here today, me included, and we're going to be afraid. But I'm still telling you, and I will tell you each week over the next five weeks, do not be afraid. How do we live in the tension of these last days? That's what we're going to talk about over the next five weeks. Today I want to introduce just three things that I think will help you. First, to understand the nature of judgment. Secondly, repentance. What is Joel calling people to do? You know, when judgment comes, what is the reaction to be? And he's saying the reaction for the people of God, people whose lives have been touched and and, and marinated in grace, the reaction is to be repentance. And finally, thirdly, brokenness a broken-hearted humility that is unique to Christians. That is unique to Christian people. So let's start with judgment, this locust plague. Look at the stages of devastation. He is describing, now some scholars say he's describing an army, uh, metaphorically a literal army that marched into the land and destroyed the land. But I think that may be saying a little bit too much and I'd rather stick with the plain reading of the text, which is that it was indeed a natural disaster of locusts. And Joel sees this natural disaster, either it was on the horizon or it was actually happened or had already happened, and he's interpreting, he's explaining to the people, this is what this is. It's a judgment. It's a judgment. What the cutting locusts, starting in verse 4, have left, the swarming have eaten. What the swarming have left, the hopping have eaten. What the hopping left, the destroying have eaten. The vine dries up. Listen to this. The fig tree languishes. You see, the whole land is under this intense burden from the locust plague. The pomegranate, the palm, the apple tree, all the trees are dried up. And now he says this. This is, this is mind-boggling. He says, gladness. Gladness dries up from the heart of man. In other words, joy is sucked out of them because everything is under the burden of this tremendous 
judgment. You see, catastrophe, folks, whatever the catastrophe is, whether it's a personal catastrophe, some personal loss that you experience, or some natural disaster, or some setback financially, or maybe your marriage goes off the rails, or your kids, somebody, one of your kids goes nuts and loses his mind. Whatever the case is, when a catastrophe strikes, it affects every aspect of life. And that's what Joel is saying. Every aspect is affected. There's no physical food. There's literally nothing to eat. On top of that, not only is there no food to eat, but everything that would have been used for their cultic observances, everything that would have been used for their their worship, for their church services, is gone. They don't have any more sacrifices. You know, the livestock is is dying. The, the, The plants and the trees, the grain offerings are not being made. It's a horrific. The worship is affected. Their physical lives are affected. There's nothing to eat. And then he says even their psychological makeup, even their their emotional lives are affected. There's no joy. The land has been erased of everything that gives life its meaning. And if you've been through heartache, if you've been through a catastrophe, personal or otherwise, you know what that's like. To lose someone close to you. Your life is sucked out of you. There's like there's nothing left. Some people don't even want to live. They don't want to go another day. Or you get a bad diagnosis from the doctor. You've got this terrible disease. The next day, the next moment, you're thinking, what am I going to do? My whole life changes. Or one of your children. One of your children steps off and says, no more. I'm tired of church. I don't want anything to do with God anymore. And it's like everything, the joy of life gets sucked out. There's nothing left. And judgment, these kinds of portents, these kinds of warnings that come from God are powerful stimulants. Powerful stimulants, folks. And they can be used a number of ways. In the hands of the Holy Spirit, they will do you good. But what's very interesting, think about it for a minute. You know, people in this world... It's an interesting phenomenon. People in this world that barely acknowledge God, that barely tip their hat, they barely believe, they don't even know if He exists, they're not even sure He exists. But let some natural disaster happen, and all of a sudden they come out of the woodwork, and who do they blame? Who is on trial once a tsunami hits, or an earthquake hits, or some disaster, or some policeman gets shot in Dallas, or some terrible event happens in in, uh, London, or Paris, or somewhere else? Who do we blame? Even if we don't believe in Him, who do we blame? We blame God. Where was God? Why can't God do anything about it? How come? Well, you guys say He's a good God. Wait a minute. Stop, stop, stop. Here's what you should tell your friends when they start rolling that stuff out. Wait a minute. Do you even believe in God? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Look at all this bad. What about all the good? Who do you thank when you get up in the morning and put your socks on and you have two feet to put your socks on? When you get your grapefruit and start eating, who do you thank? Who do you thank for the multitude of blessings? This world is, is saturated with blessing. But let something bad happen and all of a sudden God is on trial by people who don't even believe in Him. It's remarkable. It's amazing. Judgment is a powerful stimulant. But what 
Joel is saying that that stimulant, when you see judgment come, whether it's a, 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 national, a natural disaster or some terrible uh, human-caused disaster, whatever the disaster is, the posture of God's people, listen to me please, is not to be to question the goodness of God. Although I have, look, I have lots of whys when trouble happens and stuff happens in my life but never to question His goodness, never to put Him in the dock and say, you're guilty. Do you know that was the one thing that saved Job from condemnation? Is He never put God in the dock. He asked God lots of questions. He had lots of concerns. His heart was broken. His body was a wreck. His theology was turned upside down. What he thought about God was challenged. But he never brought an accusation against God. How dare we? How dare people say it's God? Oh yeah, how could your God do it? No. The reaction of people who have tasted God's grace is to be one of repentance. Brokenness. It's like a, a smelling salt. It's to, it's to wake you up. Like waking up a drunk. You know, giving them lots of coffee. Giving them smelling salt. Waking them up. Come out of your stupor. Come out of your altered state of consciousness. And become sober thinking properly, thinking rightly. And what Joel, what Joel does, which is, I think, wonderful, is he presents God, he doesn't take God out of the tension. What he does is he says, here's God. He is a judge. And he judges unrighteousness. And he, he brings his wrath upon this earth when it turns against him with a locust plague if necessary. But then there's also this other thing that Joel holds out that is the part that just, it should amaze you folks. It should, should boggle your mind. The severity of God's judgment, yes. But also the softness of God's grace. The softness of what you read, what you heard me say. This call to repentance. Weep, lament, let your heart be broken. In chapter 2, I think it's verse 31, he says, I don't want you to rend your hearts. I don't want you to rend your garments, your clothes. I want you to rend your hearts. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. I want your hearts to be broken. Bring that to me. That's an acceptable sacrifice. Godly grief, the Apostle Paul said, produces repentance. You see, sorrow and grief from a catastrophe of any kind, personal or otherwise, produces repentance. It leads to salvation, the Apostle Paul says, without regret. In other words, there's no baggage attached, attached to that repentance. It's clear. It's just plain repentance. He says, however, worldly sorrow, worldly grief, will produce death. Worldly grief will produce death. So let's look at the second one. This call to repentance. Look at verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, uh, 11, 13, all of the following verses. Call to repentance. He calls the elders. He calls all the inhabitants. He said, tell your children and tell your children's children to tell their children. He calls the drunkards. Wake up, you drunkards. Uh, you tillers of the soil. You farmers. Wake up. You priests. You see, the religious people, 
That includes me as a pastor, as a paid professional, a holy person, you know, very uh, exalted and high. Look, I'm up two steps. Even the religious leaders, he calls to repentance, even the good people, the church-going people. Repent, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, cry out to the Lord. What is repentance? You know, church, I think church people, we get kind of uh, uh, inoculated against the truth. Repentance is not just feeling bad about your sin. Repentance is utterly rejecting and finding odious and despicable your sin. It's hating your sin and it's moving away from your sin. It's turning away from your sin with all your energy, with all uh, your might, turning away from your sin. But that's only half of it, folks. Turning away is only half of it. And a lot of us as Christian people, and a lot of people who are not Christians, think that that's what we teach. That just to be a good person is you just turn away from sin. Stop doing bad things. But if that's all you do is stop turning away, stop turning away from bad things, then all you become is a Pharisee. You never make it all the way to Christianity. Christianity is never about stopping and doing bad things. That's only a tiny part of it. Another part of it, perhaps the bigger part, is that what you turn away from, what you turn to. I've told you for years, one of my favorite authors, Robert Murray McShane, said that for every look, for every look you take at your sin, for every look you take at your sin, take ten looks at Jesus. Ten to one is the ratio. Look to Him. But we tend to concentrate on our sin and our wickedness. And we do. We need to repent. We need to hate it and run away from it. But if all you do is run away and you don't turn to Jesus Christ, turn to God, Joel pleads with people, return to Me. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Repentance is about turning away from our sin. But it's about turning to the One. And let me say this very plainly. The only One who can do anything about your sin. You can't do a thing about it. You can no more do anything about your sin than you could have gotten rid of nine square miles of locust. We can no more get rid of our own sin or deal with our own sin than we can fly to the moon. Sin is a plague. It is a judgment on us. And only Jesus Christ, only our great God has done something about sin. Only He has had the power to wake us up out of our stupor, out of our drunkenness, our self-indulgence. Only He has the power to cause us to be born again. Born from above. Born again. Anew. And how do you know it's true repentance? Well, that brings us to the third point this brokenheartedness of living in the last days. You know what should characterize Christians? Unfortunately, folks, I'm on Facebook. I see how Christians are acting during this election uh, period. They are Christians 
are filled with hate and venom and the and the, the basis of human emotion is coming out in this election and i don't care whether you're democrat or republican or an independent or you're from mars i don't care hatred and venom and the and the the horrific attitude that christians are taking over this country and its election is absolutely unacceptable and let me tell you something and you're probably going to wish you hadn't come to church today that's my job. I'm a prophet. I'm kidding, folks. But look, judgment starts where? Where does it start? Where did the Where did the New Testament tell us judgment starts? It starts in the household of God. And if you've been watching TV and you've been listening to the blogs and you've been listening to these crazy Christian people, the way they're talking about politics is absolutely despicable. They're no different than the world. They're filled with anger and hate and rage, which is not faith. Where is your faith? Where is my faith? Where are we going to put our faith? Don't you know we're living in the last days? Amen? Yes, we're living in the last days. We are to expect there to be trouble and darkness and light. They're mixed together. And we are that light. Where in the world is the world going to find light if we are just one more voice of hate and venom and destruction? Where are they going to find the light? Let me ask you. Where are they going to hear the Gospel of Jesus, the good news that Christ is King of this earth? And that we do not need to be wringing our hands. We don't need to be afraid. Yes, you can be upset about what's happening. But no, you don't have to be afraid. Do you hear what I'm saying? This is no time for your knees to buckle and for your hands to hang down at your side and to say, oh my God, what's going to happen to this world? You know what's going to happen to this world? Jesus Christ is going to come back and renew the face of this world and sit upon a throne and govern in pure, unadulterated righteousness. That's what's going to happen to this world. The rest is just the process that we go through. On the day of Pentecost, Peter got up and preached this amazing sermon from Joel. He used some other text, but his main text was Joel to explain to the crowd there what was going on, why they were now living in the last days. And listen to what happened. Listen to what happened. I'm just going to read the end. When the crowd, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. You see, the Gospel will cut us to the heart. It'll get down below all that anger, below all the disappointment. It'll cut through the fear. There's plenty of fear, folks, in what may happen in these next couple decades. But the Gospel will cut down to the bottom of that. And they were cut to the heart, it says. And they asked the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And listen to what Peter says. Repent and be baptized every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Not President Obama, not Hillary Clinton, not Donald Trump. 
Repent of your sins. You see, judgment starts with us. And if we look at ourselves that way, we will start looking at everybody and everything else differently. We won't give them a pass when they do wrong. But we can become salt and light to this world that is in desperate shape. Yes? Desperate shape. Judgment is a wake-up call to the world in general, but to the church in particular. It is a wake-up call. We are to be people who are living in faith, people who are living in repentance, and people who are living every day with new obedience, new commitment to obey our King and our Sovereign, regardless of what's going on in the world around us. But judgment is also, listen folks, it is an opportunity. And this is what I want. Look, we're in a new church, a beautiful building God has given us, but the building is nothing. If what is reflected in your lives is not something. I love our building. But the building cannot proclaim the gospel. Only you can do that. And judgment is an opportunity not, listen, not to threaten, not to condemn the world around us. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save the world. It's an opportunity for us not to condemn, not to threaten, but to point a broken, wounded world to Jesus Christ the King, the true answer to the problems of this world. And God identifies, this is one of the amazing things in Joel. Let me finish with this. God identifies Himself in this judgment with His people. This will blow your mind. Listen, verse 6 and 7. A nation, He's talking about the locust. A nation has come up against My land. Laid waste My land. Vineyard, splintered my fig tree. Do you see it? Do you see how God in His judgment identifies Himself with His people? In other words, He doesn't say judgment's over here and you're over here. He says judgment is here and I'm here with you in the judgment. You could not endure the judgment if I did not step into the judgment with you. He means from the time the locust arrived in, in Israel and Judah, from that moment He meant salvation. He meant rescue. He meant restoration. In, in the next chapter, we'll look at this in a couple of weeks. I, here's what He says, I will restore what the locust has taken. I will restore what the locust is taken. How do we know He'll do that? How can, you, how can I sit up here? What kind of nerve would it take for me to stand up here and tell you this if there was not absolute proof and certainty that He identifies with us in that judgment? In the book of Joel, He talks about the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he says, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The clouds will cover the earth. The moon will be turned to darkness. The sun will be turned to blood on that great and dreadful day. And I'll tell you something, folks. 
there was a great and dreadful day. And that day was the day that Jesus died on the cross for you and for me. Judgment came down on the head of our Savior Jesus Christ so that we could sit here today in America free, living in the land flowing with milk and honey and not have to be afraid. Do you see how fear is an affront to Him when He bore the judgment of God Himself so that you, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, judgment is averted from you and is passed to Him. It is placed upon Him 100%. He took every bit of it so that He could stand with, with, no, with no apology and say to the world, Tetelestai, it is finished. It is paid. His death on the cross wrote across the judgment that was due. We owed that judgment. We deserved it. He wrote across that judgment, paid in full. And so the Apostle Paul could say this, who can separate us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or danger? No. In all these things, we are more, more than conquerors. How? Through Him who loved us. We're living in the last days. Don't be afraid. Trust in Jesus. Will you do it? I hope you will. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy that endures forever. And although we're living in very troubling times, Father, with these political upheavals, not just here in the United States, but all around the world, with terror and wars and rumor of wars, in great fear, and our own religious freedoms are becoming more and more under attack here in this country. And we may, in fact, lose the privileges that we've enjoyed for these past centuries. But Father, as your people, as your children, we call upon you. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us. And give us the grace, Father, to be salt and light and I believe, Father, with all my heart that the best days are ahead, that as the darkness closes in around us, your light will shine through your people if we will just trust you. Please help us to do it. Through Christ our Lord, amen.